The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Now, the seventh chapter of the Epistle to the Romans is one of the most misunderstood chapters in the Bible. The reason for this misunderstanding is that most people reading the Bible would say without thinking, but it simply cannot mean what it seems to say, and yet it does mean exactly what it says. For the theme will be that the believer in Christ, having been joined to the risen Lord Jesus in his resurrection, is no longer under the law of God, and that it has no control over him whatsoever. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Liberty of Grace. A hang glider will allow you to soar high above the ground, carried along on the currents of air. But before you can fly, you must have the courage to take a running jump off a cliff. Many Christians cling to the law as the foundation of daily spiritual life. But if you have the courage to make the leap from keeping the law to living by grace, you will soar into a life of spiritual freedom as God carries you along on the currents of His grace. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 7 and verses 1 through 4. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Liberty of Grace. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We worship Thee because Thou alone art God, above all the forces of the universe. We praise Thee that Thou hast manifested Thyself in Jesus Christ, and hast revealed to us that Thou art the God and Father of our Savior, and so hast become to those made acceptable in Him our Father. Bless Thy word to us in this hour, and use it to Thine honor and glory. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We come today to the opening of the seventh chapter of Romans. Or, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those that know law, that the law has dominion over a man only during his lifetime? Now, the seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans deals with the great theme of the relationship between the individual believer and the law of God. Now, the human heart, so pitifully eager to do something in its own behalf, will not let the law go as God desires the believer to do. The drowning man will grasp at a straw, even if it is a wet, soggy straw. The human heart finds that it's 
is in great difficulty with the thought of giving up all semblance of legality and abandoning life to the grace of God. I can remember an incident that happened when I was a boy and that will illustrate our dilemma. I was born within a few miles of the Pacific Ocean near Monterey Bay in California. The beach that was nearest our home was cursed with a very swift undertow and there had been fatal drowning accidents there more than once, and we were all warned against the place. The sandy beach ran out level for a few yards, and then there was a sudden drop, which caught the unwary and endangered life if there was not great care taken. One day, when I was only learning to swim, we were at this place. I had walked into the surf and was pretending to swim. One foot was on the sand every other moment, giving me balance, and my arms were thrashing on the surface of the water, giving the appearance of swimming. I bounced along in this way for some time, and all of a sudden, I had a panic-stricken moment. The bottom was not there. I had stepped off the ledge of sand and into the deep water. Now, in the providence of God, I was buffeted by the waves and caught on a strong incoming roller and pitched up into the shallow water. I scrambled to my feet, trying to get over the gasping that had come from swallowing a quantity of seawater and fought my way to the dry sand. I can remember yet the terrifying feeling of being out of my depth, with nothing under me and strong currents pulling at me, and then being tossed by a wave, surrounded by the gray-green flood and not knowing at the moment in which direction it was taking me. Now it is thus with many Christians when they are brought to the place where they must step out of the sphere of doing something for themselves and into the place where they are to be borne along on the will of God without any possibility of doing anything about it, of guiding one's direction, of knowing even where it is all going to take one. Oh yes, to heaven in the end, but the immediate steps are so important when one is living life a day at a time. The transition from law to grace is so great and overwhelming that a vast number of believers in Christ never reach the place in their Christian experience where they know the freedom from law and the irresistibleness of grace. But when one has gotten over the moment of panic and is borne along steadily by the grace of God, buoyed up, sustained, carried, cradled, calmed, there is nothing in the measure of human life that can compare with it. It is, in fact, the sense of living a portion of eternity already in time. Now, the present section of the Epistle to the Romans is calculated to produce that spiritual experience, that spiritual triumph, in those who are willing to step out into the deeps of grace. This is indicated by the fact that the seventh chapter of Romans begins with a word, which is not translated in the vast majority of the modern versions of the Bible. For the chapter does not begin in Greek as it does in English. In our modern versions, the King James Version, even the new version which has just been published, begins, Know ye not, or do you not know? But with the coordinating particle, or. That's the way the chapter really begins. That which marks a definite alternative. It should be, quote, Or do you not know? Now, only the English and American revised versions published more than half a century ago begin this chapter with this conjunction, which is in the Greek. None of the modern versions that I have seen makes mention of its existence. And yet I think, along with many of the commentators, that it is important and can guide us into the knowledge of the meaning of the section. 
You see, Paul has a peculiar style of his own, and there's a concrete example of it here. Very often, Paul announces two subjects, setting them forth as a theme that we might call one, two, and then instead of going back and treating one and then two, he will treat the second at some length and then go back to the first. And if we're not on the lookout for this peculiarity, we may wonder at the seeming jumpiness of the exposition. And here in the present instance, we're carried back to chapter 6 and verse 15. For there we read, Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And as soon as that question is asked, the apostle spends considerable time in answering part of the question, the second part. For he treats it first as though it had been asked, Shall we sin because we are under grace? And having shown the preposterous folly of such an idea, he now returns to the question in order to treat the part he had omitted. Recognizing this mannerism of Paul, we make it reconstruct the passage as follows. Shall we sin because we are not under law? Or are you ignorant that the law dominates a man only as long as he is living? Connie Bear states it aptly when he paraphrases it. You must acknowledge what I say, that we are not under law, or be ignorant. And that's the real paraphrase of our text in Romans 7.1. Now, it's very unfortunate that there is so much spiritual ignorance among believers today. It was so in the days of Paul, of course. And one may wonder if there is not even more of such ignorance in our day. The four words in English, the verb, do you not know, is a single word in Greek. And it is the word which, transliterated, has become our word agnostic. In the light of the word of God, there is no good and sufficient reason for a believer to remain in ignorance of spiritual matters. For the revelation is so complete that knowledge is available. And it is God's will that we should enter into that knowledge, since he has furnished it to us so abundantly. Now, there were a very great many Jews living in Rome at the time Paul wrote the epistle. And many of these were among those who had become Christians. In fact, we may conclude with practical certainty that the church at Rome had been founded by these men who had been visiting the land of their ancestors at the time the Messiah rose from the dead and sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We know, of course, that Peter was never in Rome and that there is no historical evidence for such an idea. But these Israelites had been brought out of their former belief and into the church at Pentecost, that birthday of the true church. And then shortly thereafter, they had returned to the land of their residence, to the capital city of the empire, and had begun to break bread in the communion service there. That's the way the church began, within a few weeks of the time of Pentecost. Now, of course, not possessing any of the New Testament, since it had not yet been written, they slipped back easily into the old ways of Moses. There were many Gentiles who had been saved, but this hard core of the early church was essentially Jewish. And the greatest theological battle of the first century was that which Paul waged to bring all believers out from under the control of the law in order that they might know the depths of grace. And it is to this legalistic party that Paul now addresses himself. He calls them brethren. And it's evident that he is speaking to them according to the flesh, as well as according to the spirit. He adds a parenthesis to state that he is speaking to those who know the law. Now, I have already pointed out half a dozen studies ago that the word law has at least five different meanings in this epistle. 
There are only two of these which might apply in this case, and we can easily discard one and come to the conclusion that there is reference here only to the law of Moses. The term is not used here in its widest sense, covering the whole legal principle, law as applied to any man, Jew or Gentile. For if such were the case, the passage would refer to Roman law, Gentile law, and Paul would be stating a great legal inaccuracy in attempting to teach, as he does in the next verse, that a woman was bound to her husband under such law as long as he lived. In Greece, for example, divorce had become so common by the time of the classical period that the great orators represent the constitution of a dowry as a necessary precaution to give some solidity to the bond of marriage. For in Greece, a man could repudiate his wife by a simple statement before witnesses, but it then became necessary to give back the money she brought him. While under the same law, a woman could procure a divorce with not much more difficulty by having a bill of divorcement written out and taken before the one of the chief officials, the archont. It was even possible under Greek law for the father of a married woman to step in and break up the marriage, take back his daughter, and marry her to another, as Demosthenes reported, while Plato in his Republic set forth that when harmony no longer reigned in a home, a committee of twenty could go into the matter, and if they were not able to reestablish peace, where they proceeded to separate the husband and the wife, and to find for each of them a mate that they thought better suited to their personalities. It is only from the Mosaic law through the church that the marriage laws expressed in Paul's illustration have come down into our modern codes. And it should be remarked in passing that the church has made an unholy mess of the whole marriage situation by attempting to apply divine law to people who have never come into life through Jesus Christ. Many of the divorce difficulties of our day and many deep unkindnesses performed ungraciously in the name of Christ are totally contrary to biblical principles, and many of these arise out of this attempt to force Christian principles on unregenerate people. It is only those whom God hath joined together that may not be put asunder by man, and only born-again people have been joined together by God. I know what I'm saying. I'm saying that a marriage between anyone who is not a born-again Christian and another born-again Christian is not a marriage in the sight of God. And some may think it very sweeping. And yet, if we're honest with the Bible, it does teach that anything else is just the living together of people may be in a very honorable state, but nevertheless, that it is not marriage in the sight of God. Furthermore, when a person becomes a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, their entire past is wiped out, no matter what it may include of sins or errors of judgment or mistakes of any kind or of marriages. A prominent leader in Christian missions told me that the Church of Jesus Christ would seldom find a convert from any of the great pagan religions who had not had a very tangled marriage history, and that the missions were always forced to count the life as beginning at the time that men came to trust in Christ. And so it should be in America. The same principle should be applied here in this country, where there are millions of pagans living around us in total ignorance of the laws of the Lord and his principles of grace 
toward those who have become alive in Christ. So now in verse 2 of chapter 7, Paul announces the evident principle that the law has jurisdiction over a man only as long as he lives. No matter what crime a man may have committed, the human penalty will be wiped out by his death. A policeman may be chasing a criminal who is escaping in a supercharged, high-powered automobile. The officer of the law may be thinking in his mind that the offender is going to get sentenced to five or ten years in prison. But if the car suddenly crashes into a telephone pole, killing the escaping offender, the policeman immediately turns his attention to getting the corpse to the morgue and the wreck off the road and writes the case off as finished, finished by death. Now, there has come in such a case the intervention which takes the case out of all human jurisdiction and removes it to that higher court from which there can be no appeal and in whose findings there can be no error. As the simplest example of this principle, Paul uses that of marriage under the Mosaic law. A woman who has a living husband is bound to that man by the Mosaic law as long as the man is living. But if the husband die, she is, of course, a widow and is perfectly free from any vows that were made by her or for her in the first marriage. Under this law, therefore, a woman who left her living husband to be joined to any other man would have to be considered as an adulteress. But if her husband should die, then she's free from that law. And if she then marries another man, she would not be considered as an adulteress. This is Romans 7, verses 2 and 3. Now, the importance of such an illustration of this is twofold. In every nation under the sun, there is some sacredness, at least, attached to the marriage relationship. Even those who are the most steeped in barbarity have some taboos concerning the freedom of a wife and can therefore seize the underlying truth that comes from the original plan of God and which has found its expression in the moral law of the Old Testament. But the chief importance of this illustration is that it shows that a human relationship is dissolved by the death of one of the parties and that when death enters the picture, not only is the old relationship broken, but the basis for a new relationship is established. In Rome, as in all the world where the young church had been established, there were those who followed the line of the Judaizers and who wished to bring all believers under the bondage of that law, a yoke which neither those then living nor their fathers throughout history had ever been able to bear, as Peter had pointed out at the first church council. It was to these that the present paragraph was primarily addressed, and through them all the believers, even down to us today. For the whole message is an urgent appeal to believers to comprehend that which can make it possible for their lives to be fruitful unto holiness. There can be no true fruit-bearing apart from freedom from the law. And so this is stressed in order that the believer may understand the place where fruitfulness is truly produced in our new relation to Christ in his free grace. As someone has said, if the apostle did not show this, he would leave the Christian man in bondage, not for salvation, but in bondage for sanctification and service, struggling in a hard, legal way to please God, instead of finding his source and spring of joyous service in union with Christ. This instruction about the law is therefore necessary because of the danger to believers being in bondage to law and not enjoying the liberty of grace. 
Now, it remains to apply the illustration of a marriage being held together by the life of a husband, but having no more validity upon the death of the husband. The commentators have some disagreement, but I, beyond any question, believe that the first husband in this parable, the husband is the law. The Jewish believers had been subject to that law for more than 1,500 years. They knew nothing else, and they were bound to it in every part of their life. But the wife of the parable is the company of believers who had come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah and their sin-bearer. Unfortunately, we must expand this group today to cover the fact that there are multitudes, multitudes in Christendom who have gone back under law to such an extent that they're born and brought up in its bondage almost as much as any Israelite was from the time of Moses to Christ. They have made the law alive by their folly, and they have claimed to be following it. Since all who are under law are debtors to do the whole law, they're in the position of the wife who is bound to a tyrant husband in all things. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, the law died with him. This was the first husband. And this is emphatically stated in several passages, notably in the epistle to the Colossians. For we read in Colossians 2, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he hath made alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, if we take our parable from Romans and put it in the framework of this parable in Colossians, it would set forth that our first marriage to law was against us, but that when Christ died, the law, our first husband, was nailed to his cross. And so that when Christ died, the law died with him, leaving us a rather happy widow to be joined to Christ forever. For we at once became free from any obligation that was ours from our marriage to the law, and were immediately free to live with Christ in the newness of the life that is our new and eternal union with him. Now, because human nature is so prone to find ways to satisfy itself, there might be those who would seek to draw some license from the illustration which God has used here. But there is no proper way in which such an attitude can be taken. The morality demanded in the first marriage is just as true a morality under the second marriage. In fact, if we examine it closely and press the parable to its limits, we will find how wonderful it really is. For a wife might have been physically faithful to a tyrant of a husband, though her mind would rebel secretly at the bondage of her marriage to him. But let him die, and let her be released from him by that law of death, and she is free, joyously free, to marry another who is good and kind and tender, and who is capable of drawing from her being all that love can bring forth in acknowledgement of the sweetness of this new love. So it is with the heart that has been made free from the tyranny of legalism. While there was a grinding slavish obedience to that law, there was no freedom of love from the heart. But under the new relationship, 
the soul and spirit are faithful to the new Lord of love. And there is drawn from the glad wife the faithfulness of intention. Already we have the illustration of that which will be set forth in the next chapter. That what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, the first husband. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Condemned sin in the flesh. So that the righteousness demanded by the law, the first husband, might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit in union with Christ. And our God and Father, we pray thee that thou will bless this study to our hearts and bring us to a full joy of knowledge of all that is ours in Christ Jesus. Give restlessness to any who do not know thee, but upon all thy redeemed own, give the glad, free joy of union with Christ forever and unto thee be the glory, now until he comes again and forever. Amen. The believer is no longer under the law of God. It has no control over the believer whatsoever. The believer has been joined to the risen Lord Jesus Christ to enjoy living daily in the grace of God. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Liberty of Grace. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Liberty of Grace, or simply request message number R7-1. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, What God Has Joined Together. In the book of Malachi, God declares that He hates divorce. And yet, in America, the divorce rate among professing Christians is virtually the same as that of unbelievers. This booklet will show you from Scripture how important marriage is in God's eyes and how to maintain a strong, healthy relationship with your husband or wife. If you want to build a biblically sound marriage that will glorify God and stand the test of time, ask for your free copy of What God Has Joined Together When You Call or Write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please, won't you prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air? For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888, or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed theologians and teachers such as Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.